And thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Message is Moving. Happy New Year. We are back with another episode. And on this episode, we are speaking on the generation curse of redlining. So, of course, I had to bring back my very first guest, Ashley Smith Willis. Hello, hello. I am glad to be back. How are you? I am glad that you are back. You were a favorite based on the feedback, <laughs> wow. so. <laughs> wow, I'm so honored, I'm so grateful. Right, so when we're talking about redlining as a generational curse, redlining has definitely robbed gener- generational wealth in black households. When people talk to um, systematic racism, nothing leaves a more damaging effect than redlining. So actually, I'm actually gonna let you lead the way when it comes to redlining or the term redlining, what exactly is that in your words? Yeah, um, so redlining, like you said, it, it definitely plagues um, the black community um, as far as generational wealth. The term redlining, I learned from um, a book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which um, is pretty much how the government enforced segregation even after for long periods of time. So even after um, integration, how they continue to segregate and how segregation continues on even now. Um, So that's like in general, what redlining um, is pretty much another term for segregation, but the way that it's done is through federal and state government um, actually determining lines on where black, the black community could actually live or not live as well as saying to um, white homeowners, not to integrate a neighborhood with black people. And so that's what redlining is. Great explanation. And I'm actually going to add a little historical context to it, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, sure. So back, basically back in the 1930s, federal housing policies resulted in a practice of color coding maps to designate certain neighborhoods as best or worse for mortgage lending, which I actually alluded to. So. Borrowers buying in white communities were colored green for being the safest for lending, and they can get their loans back by the federal government. Black neighborhoods were colored red, which was deemed too risky for mortgage lending. Without the federal guarantee, banks wouldn't lend to blacks. Blacks were often forced to purchase homes under predatory contracts that were so financially inconvenient that many ended up being evicted. So although the government built more complexes for more affordable housing, it segregated these communities. Urban development plans lack the same amenities, funding for schools, and also access to jobs compared to public housing for whites. Um, Another um, insult to injury was after World War II, the Veterans Administration denied black veterans lower cost government guaranteed mortgages that white veterans used to help build generational welfare descendants. So that's like the historical context of what started redlining and how it relates to right. how it's still going on today. Um, so you you actually, it's funny because you actually mentioned a book I was going to recommend at the end. So what, what led you to that Sorry. book that you referred to? <laughs> no, that's fine. You- <laughs> um, pretty much like any in the anti-racism world on social media, you know, there's lots of books about um, just all the injustices that happened, all the social justice things. Um, And so that book was one of the books that was mentioned. That's what kind of led me to it. Um, But also what actually made me pick, choose that one to read was um, just learning about Ears Property here. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. So um, learning about Ears Property and my family having Ears Property and actually kind of seeing, doing research into that and seeing how that plays into um, the process of redlining or gentrification. Um, Just again, with doing any type of social justice research, when you see how directly impacted um, the black community is, 
it always comes down to like how federal government has played into that. And so redlining is one of the more prevalent processes that led me to reading that book. Got it. So based on not only that book, but you being very aware of what's going on policy wise and legislation wise, how do you feel it still has such an effect today, like in the modern times? Do you think it's the lack of education? Um, do you think, cause I know, I know you know, racism systematically is a part of it, right? But if you had to, to assert why or ascertain why it's still going on today, what would be one of your answers? Um, I, I, I like that question. I'm gonna answer kind of in a, I think a more backwards or reverse way, um, okay. because one of my, in dealing with conversations, whenever it talk, whenever we're talking about creating generational wealth or reparations for Black um, people or politics and things like that, um, a lot of people talk about how they're getting into real estate or you know wanting to buy property in order for them to create their own generational wealth, flipping property and things like that. And so, for for me, in my mind. I'm thinking about, yes, if you have the money and the collateral to do that, so it's, it's, it's a step, you know, a process. Get your credit together, have good credit, buy a house, flip a house, rent it out, you know, and this is creating wealth, um, you know, for you, for you and your family. But there's a lot of families who don't have that, who cannot have that due to inequalities. And so the way that I feel like this impacts us um, now in the modern times is that when we think about, how credit, how home loan um, loans, uh, you know, people who are approved or not approved for home loans, mm-hmm. is impacting those who are continue, like who don't have that process or that ability to either like put money in savings or stocks and bonds or or build up their credit. Um, who can't even start off with getting their first house, let alone flipping houses, um, so that they can provide generational wealth for their families. Did I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. Um, okay. You, you, you did. You, you like I said, it's kind of reverse. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. You did because it, it touched on the effects and the reason why it's so pivotal. And I, I think you touched on a good one because I know flipping, right, is such a yeah. huge thing that people get into now, um, particularly right. wholesale flipping. So yeah, no, you, exactly. Uh, you, you want to elaborate more on that or? Yeah, so absolutely. So, so like you were saying, well, we're both saying flipping is one one aspect for the effects and what people are trying to do. But we also, on the other side of that, see a lot of gentrification. We see a lot of people being pushed out of their neighborhoods and pushed out of their houses, and it's it's coming from this this redlining process. It's like this long history of redlining that's causing gentrification. So, on one hand, we got people who are trying to break that generational curse of redlining by establishing their own wealth. And then we have other people who are literally being pushed out of the only homes that they were allowed to have or the neighborhoods that they were allowed to be in for, you know, government sanctioned tourism or developments or things like that. Um, so that's that's how I see it affecting our society today on both ends. Got it. And speaking of that, to, to create a segue, one of the ways that you are affected by is, of course, if you are a homeowner, right? And let's say you want to move your family to another um, community or you just wanted to, like we gotta explain, use generational wealth. Maybe you try to route or stay somewhere for a year and you want to sell that property. Well, Nightline had a special where this interracial couple, um, they spoke on the racial bias of that process. <laughs> and so it basically was this interracial couple. You might have seen it as well. But I think it was I know a, what you're talking about. Yeah, it was an interracial couple and they basically were seeing their appraisal. The first appraisal was characterized as being, the process is considered petty of how the wife explained it. The wife is a um, black woman and she has a white husband. On the second appraisal, the wife removed all of her family pictures, any black historical figures, and she and her son was not present during the second appraisal. The value of that appraisal went up over one hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, think about that. You're getting an appraisal, and just because the wife and all the pictures signified a black family, a black resident, 
that in play created a lower value, but when they removed all those pictures, the value jumped up by 40%. Absolutely, yeah. And and that's the thing, because I feel like we, a lot of times when we're bringing these issues, unless somebody's documenting it, unless they have that kind of, that proof right there, um, it's like we're coming up with conspiracy theories, but I remember reading an article um, similar to that, um, and I don't want to give credit to a wrong source, but um, I, I was, yeah, I'm going to just say I read an article, but it was pretty much talking about the underwriting process and how, um, so you know when you're running your credit, every address that you, when you look at your credit report, it's going to have like a, your history of addresses or places you have lived at. And so when you're getting approved to buy a home, uh, the underwriting process, so we have the banker in the home, homeowner um, program, but the underwriting process, they're looking at your history to kind of see what neighborhoods you came from to determine how much of they're going to approve you for a loan as well. So it's, it's kind of like that same process of for black families or black neighborhoods, You that's what determines them for you getting approved. And just like with the family you were talking about on Nightline, if, um, the people who are doing the appraisal, they're basing it off of, of, of a racial bias. Um, and it doesn't look like that unless you actually have the proof you know, to show them, but it, this, this is what happens. Right. And just to add more context to it, that particular house, uh, the example that I gave, that was in a predominantly white neighborhood because what a particular critic or a detractor would say is, well, there are communities that are predominantly black that would be lower in value. Right. Like that would be, a, you know, and maybe in some cases, you know, depending on the situation that can be argued. That's why I had receipts. So here's my receipt that I have. So Olympia Fields, let me ask you this, has she ever been to Chicago? One time, yes. One time, okay. So Olympia Fields, I don't know if you heard of that particular neighborhood, but that was once a majority white community in Chicago's suburban area. And it's now one of the wealthiest and best educated majority black resident residencies in the country. So I'm gonna repeat that. Olympia Fields was once a majority white community in Chicago's suburban area, and it's now one of the wealthiest and best educated black predominantly residents in the country. And their same home prices, they have the same home prices that they did in 1990, and it's now 2020. Yeah, which is again with redlining because of how they're, that redlining is specifically the process of, of depending on if you're white or black, it ter- determines the property value. So, and it, and it promotes white flight. So white flight comes in whenever there's black people moving into the neighborhoods. So like you said, it was originally a white, predominantly white neighborhood. And then so they start to see black people moving in. And because of whatever government agreements that's going on behind the scenes or developer wanting to build more homes out there, white people are moving out of the neighborhood because black people are moving in. Uh-huh. And the perception of it changes. Um, one of the things in that light night, in that nightline um, documentary, because it was kind of a playback of something they did over 30 years ago. They had like these, these uh, white and black um, Contributor, but it kind of went in different businesses. They both them try to go to a car dealership, open them try to rent an apartment. They had like all these examples and the different discriminatory practices that was faced on the bias. And it, it kind of led me into looking more into well, what's other ways of redlining, right? Because racial bias and redlining, they can come hand in hand, but sometimes it's deeper than just mortgage lending. Right. And oh, what yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish your thought, please. Oh, no. I, I was going to go to another topic, so you can go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say it's definitely deeper because it, um, with red line, when you're, when governments are, when the federal government is getting contracts from developers, they're determining what makes a, a, a particular um, area, property, what it is. So for white neighborhoods, they're saying that these are residential homes and for black neighborhoods or people where they're allowing black people to live, they're making those industrial. And so as far as what you're seeing about it, about it being um, deeper than just mortgage lending, it's affecting our livelihood. It's affecting why we get, why we don't have um, 
parks or you know nature in, in certain neighborhoods but we have liquor stores or corner stores or um you know those types of areas or we have food deserts in certain areas so we we can't you know we don't even have proper food or appropriate food in certain neighborhoods however in because it's residential or it's deemed residential, they have, um, you know, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's and things like that. They have more healthier options. So it, it affects not only our the mortgage lending, but it's affecting our health. It's affecting our children's school, um, jobs. Like, it affects, it trickles down all, all through the community. Right. And a, a joke here in 2021, um, it's kind of a sick joke, but it's kind of true. They all... Now people are saying, especially on in the Twitter world, if you see Whole Foods is a wrap for that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're pushing it out. <laughs> they're pushing black people out. Um, so it, it, it is a, it's a cruel joke, but it's, a, it's the facts because whenever you see that, it's a warning sign. <laughs> if you see that your neighborhood is getting better quality food, it's because they've already started, they've deemed it as residential and they're already pushing out people to raise the property value so that people who can't afford higher taxes or or their mortgage now or, you know, whatever, they're pushing them out or even afford the food in Whole Foods because it's, it's more expensive to eat healthy. So people who can't even afford that food, um, unless they're getting some type of voucher, they're, you know, they're pushing them out of their community. Right. Absolutely. So what I was going to, what, what I am going to get into, and I'm actually going to ask you if this is a form of redlining as well. I'm going to give this the scenario and then you being the redlining student, <laughs> you're going to tell me if it's, a, if it's a strong case for redlining as well, okay? Okay. So this is actually a current news event. This happened on January 13th, which was sometime last week on the day of this recording. So former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder was charged with willful neglect of duty in his role with the Flint crisis. So, quick recap, Rick Snyder appointed an emergency manager over Flint who made a money-saving decision to use the Flint River for water while a regional pipeline from Lake Huron was under construction. Tragically, the corrosive water was not treated properly and released lead from old plumbing into homes, which is as known as the Flint crisis. So, Rick Snyder was the governor at that time. When you think about the Flint crisis, and as they termed it, that money-saving money decision to use Flint River for water, do you think that's a form of redlining? Because will you see that same type of decision or was it predominantly white area? Because Flint is predominantly black. Right, yeah, so, definitely. You agree, okay. Um, yeah. No, no, I was going to say that it definitely sounds like it to me. I mean, you're, you are a government um, representative making this, making money decisions, but it's based off of a predominantly black neighborhood. I would bet money that you, like if it was still a predominant, if it was ever a predominantly white neighborhood or any other neighborhood in Michigan that was predominantly white, they would not have, if, if he did make that decision, um, the white community would have protested and it would, he would not have gone through with it versus if black people protested and tried to prevent it, if the decision probably would have still went through regardless. But that's right. Right. And even on the response of it, when it, when it became a problem, they did not move as hastily as you would expect. It took many people getting sick and actually people dying based on the poisoning of water. Uh, So that's just another example of how redlining can it can really mask itself and how it appears, right? Exactly, yeah. And I actually was gonna ask you directly for the work that you do for your career. Mm-hmm. How have you seen the consequences of a red line transpired? Well, you, I mean, as a child advocate, like you see it all the time in the different types of homes you go in. So not only do we see, again, the children in the areas that they live in, um, most of them are government sanctioned housing that um, where poverty or they're a poverty stricken environment. And so you see a lot, of, a lot of neglect in that area. But there's also where there's like, you know, the thousand or $300,000 homes downtown or in Somerville next in. If we go into those houses, they look good on the outside. And because of their address, when we go to court, the judge is going to give them every type of leniency because of where, because of their address, or because of how they, 
who they are when they come into the courtroom versus a person who has a lower education or is in a poverty stricken or um, under resourced area, they're not going to get the same opportunities. Um, so that's that's kind of like where you see it play out in court, but it's also based off of where people are living and you know the amount of families that you see come through the court, they're recognizing a particular area. The police are staying in this particular area and pretty much targeting that area for drugs or um, neglect. And so we see those families a lot more than it's the same rate of things that are happening, but these cases aren't making it to family court because law enforcement is giving them a lot of leeway in a different neighborhood. Mm. And to come with receipts, since Ashley mentioned that, <laughs> so here's what I found. The state line analysis of federal data found that in nearly 20% of the zip codes where most homeowners are black, home values have decreased since 2000, the year 2000, compared with only 2% in neighborhoods. So I'm going to repeat that. In nearly 20% of the zip codes where most homeowners are, homeowners are black, home values have decreased since the year 2000 compared to only 2% in the neighborhoods where blacks were the minority. And I, we mentioned also the the inconvenience, why then in, in the historical context, right? Because once it becomes inconvenience, right? So you've seen develop in the community and then you kind of push that, push those original residents out. And you mentioned Ears Property, which we're definitely going to speak on in a separate episode, but Ears property is definitely an example of that, right? Because it allows those loopholes where it gives the developer and anybody that has that that large wealth that into investing, it gives them an advantage over the actual family that reside over the land for them to sell it. Yes, absolutely. And not only that, but I think the, the bigger point is like how aggressive um, either government was as well as the, the residents in the white community, so white residents, how violently aggressive they are in I'm putting air quotes around protecting, but um, how, how territorial they are. So it's not that somebody like black people uh, weren't always just not getting approved. Of course, at times people started to get approved. That's how the neighborhoods got, uh, became integrated. But um, when you see like, this is how we have like Karen's calling Karens or like for instance in um, South Carolina the Somerville situation where um, the boy was in the pool a black child was in the pool and the white woman just was she actually hit him she assaulted him you know for being in her in her pool quotes around her um, in that neighborhood because he was a black child in a predominantly white neighborhood so it's, it's a lot of violence and a lot of aggression even for trying to um, integrate, um, and then they have the backing of government support as well. Mm. That example you gave in Somerville, that what that situation that happened in Somerville, yeah, that is always a a battle that that's that's not always televised. That type of situation, right? But it's almost that reality, right? Because when we think about, we mentioned this briefly on uneducated voting that episode where you think of downtown Charleston and how that area was, and then when you see development around that area, but the residents don't really get a chance to enjoy that new development because now they're gonna raise the taxes or they're gonna raise the property taxes, just specifically to kind of get them pushed out to bring in what they seem more valuable, which are white residents. Um, and if you think that's something that's an opinion, well, this episode is all about receipts. I got receipts on that too. <laughs> Great. So blacks even face higher tax assessments than white homeowners. Black Hispanic residents have a tax burden 10 to 13% higher for the same bundle of public services as white residents. And this is according to a working paper by economist Troop Howard at the University of Utah and Carlos, I don't want to butcher his names. So I was going to say Carlos of Indiana University. Carlos, if you know who you are, I apologize. I see your last name. Don't want to ruin it. I'm sorry. But that's the that's that's one of that's receipts to back that to back that up. And if you're from the Charleston area, South Carolina, 
when I think of Mount Pleasant and how Mount Pleasant has grown to be, I, I think they consider, I think now it's the highest cost of living city yeah. in the whole South Carolina, I believe. I don't want to misquote, but I believe the last time I read about that, that's the case. And me growing up in Huge, which is only like 15, 20 minutes away, I remember Mount Pleasant was nothing to think about. It was pay wiggly right. and blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's grown to be this area where a lot of transplants, as we call out-of-towners that come in, transplants oh, yeah. look at Mount Pleasant as like a gold mine. Yes, especially by the beach, because they love to retire by the beach. So it is completely developed, but not even just Mount Pleasant, but Somerville. So growing up in Charleston, I remember um, we moved, I moved to like the College Park Latin area, and I thought it was a foreign place when I was like in middle school. I thought we was driving so far away from the city, like, and that was Latin, that was College Park, and then not even to mention Somerville. Somerville was like even more, you know, foreign of a place as growing up because we just stayed in Charleston. But now Somerville is completely, they, they have built a whole um, interstate exit <laughs> for Nexton um, where they have, because of the jobs like Mercedes and Volvo, the Volvo plant, they, they have a whole exit for Volvo now. Um, mm. Just, and it's just like this area that wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, fully developed like that. And now this is where everybody's wanting to go. They want to go to Nexton in Somerville or they're taking a Jedburg exit. And it's because of, like you said, these transplants who came down here for these jobs that should have been for local people, um, but they moved here and now they have these $3,000 condos down there uh, for people to come to. But, but at the same time, right across the highway, we have a Section 8 neighborhood who don't doesn't they don't have a pool. Their school isn't updated. They did not have any. The only grocery store they had there was, uh, I think it's a food line or a bylo there. Um, but now they have, in, in the next neighborhood, they have a whole school. They have grocery uh, Publix. You know, they have different types of options over there now that they've built this area up for the transplants from uh, Fort Baltimore and Mercedes. I, and that's a great real-time example because another thing that I saw, especially in the past three years in the Charleston area specifically, was I remember growing up, Ash, I know you, you, you were aware of as well, there was a time where you can easily find a Piggy Wiggly or a Food Line. Yeah. Because <laughs> there were the, the more affordable supermarket options. Now we see Harris Teeter and Publix, Whole Foods, Seder <laughs> Joe's, Lowe's Foods, and they're taking over the game in the Charleston area. Now, that's no disrespect to those stores because I shop in some of those stores. Right, but yeah. When you, when you think of the pricing of it, like everything is a pattern. Think about what grocery store is being replaced with one of those stores. Think about the subdivision that's now coming in near that store. Now look at your, your property taxes and see how that reflects off that new development. Exactly, but also think about how far it is from the people who may need to catch the bus to that store. You know, so the neighborhoods who may need that healthy food or that help those healthier options, um, there it's, it's like about 15, 20 minutes away. And it's, some of them are not even on the bus, bus route to get there. So they have to stick to the same, the normal, you know, like Piggly Wiggly or Dasha's, which, but again, because um, Piggly Wiggly's, I think, down here have really closed down, which was a local, it provided local food, local yeah. produce. So not only are they replacing local supermarkets, but they're replacing like local farmers um, in agriculture. Right. And just something, and I've noticed might be, I don't want to dive a little too outside of it, but I even think about downtown with selling of the Charleston Roses, right? And how Ooh. all of a sudden that became a problem with people who are who weren't local and used to the culture. Um, yeah. How that's perceived as soliciting to a different level, even though that's always been a custom in Charleston area. Like how can you move here and don't appreciate the the culture? Like it feels like they're adjusting to the transplants rather than adhering to the locals. And that's not only black, you have people who aren't black that grew up in Charleston that's not happy with some of these changes as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to speak to your point about um, catering to the transplants because this, this is where you see um, politics uh, play in with redlining. 
with not only is it a division of um, the different type of neighborhoods, but it's also a division of representatives. So for if certain areas, you know, you like certain areas are for the city and certain areas are for the county. And so that determines that politician. So I don't know if you um, watch, if you saw Peter Sitchin of South Carolina during the election, but it was like, I was surprised because it was like South Carolina, South Carolina is a red state, but I was so proud that Charleston was blue. <laughs> and so I'm thinking like, you know, Charleston is like one of them. It's the major city, you know, in South Carolina, Charleston, of course, um, Greenville, Columbia, those places. But, you know, Charleston's a lot of times where people are coming from. And so when you think about who our representative is and how they vote versus the outer county areas or the um, the outer skirts areas, I should say, or the non-popular areas in how who their representatives are. So I just, like, redlining also plays into who your representative is going to be um, and, and as well as that community as well. Great point. Great point. So when we think about, because we're not, we're not bringing up, and by the way, to Ashley's point, if you want to learn more about how you can educate your vote, please go back to episode one with me and Ashley on the Messages Movement podcast, streaming on all platforms. Just a quick plug. Anyway, um, when it comes to discussion ways, because all right, we already explained how we identify what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, I want us to kind of brainstorm a little bit on how we can move to a different direction. I'm not saying we have all the answers because it's not really our job, but we have to create dialogue to present to who has the power. So yeah. with appraisals, right, I know usually like when it, when it deals with property and values, usually the bank is who orders the appraisals. So do you think part of it is a lack of representation? Maybe it's training with the banks on how to, or maybe it's that's the, the people who do the individuals who do the appraisal have to be more familiar with the area. How much do you think is part of that? I, I understand the whole grand scheme of things, but for more direct approach, do you think whoever is doing the appraisal they should be more familiar with those areas and not just on analytics? Or how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so I I will say I'm not as versed in how appraisals work in the home. Um, I get, you know, as as far as, like, they determine how much the home is worth. But as far as getting approved, I do think the grand scheme of things play a part into, like, that bank or that loan, home loan program, ownership program, because, so, like, what Redlining talks about, the government is going to determine particular neighborhoods and then that appraiser is going to go by that particular neighborhood and determine how much that home is worth but it's also the underwriting so I don't think it's like a a matter of um, representation in the bank I do think of course that plays a part in it because if you're not actually looking for inequities or inequalities you know to make sure that you're doing things correctly um, then of course it's going to play a part in how much you write the home for. However, I would I want to use an example like for instance, um, I don't know if you are familiar with the program NACA, but they so NACA doesn't really necessarily go by your credit score to get you uh-huh. approved. They they do look at it, um, but they work with you and it's based off of your your payment history and how well you handle finances versus looking just directly at your credit score. Whereas the traditional route, they're going to look at your credit score first and then that's you have to get to that certain number before they approve you for a home and then the underwriting process starts before you have you you know so that you can get approved so it's that's what i see it as a more direct approach it's like the programs from the banks or the traditional route program that's rooted in in racism fha has been determined in the home the holo home ownership loan program i'm saying it wrong but that pro that whole program it's rooted in racial bias with redlining. So we're using those um, those tools to determine the appraisal values. They're still using the same systems until those systems are disrupted to um, determine property value. Absolutely. And that's also a great point as well. Because when I think of ways like brainstorming, I try to think of both sides of the coin, right? Like for the ones who are homeowners like to, because that's, that, that's a, a huge hit as well. Because the problem is not really the buyers. The problem is for that 
particular scenario of mortgage lending. Now, part of it too is like, if I'm trying to sell a home and not being undercutted. Right, right. Um, and, and also to have that same type of, like I mentioned with Olympia Fields in Chicago, to have that type of community where, okay, it's not poverty stricken, it's not crime filled, and it's majority black. So why haven't the value of these homes not increased since the year 1990? Right, exactly. Let me give you an example to kind and it's it's off topic, but it's related. So if we think about it in terms of um, education, so because I'm a child advocate, education plays a big role in children's lives. And so my my brain goes to education. So think about it as in like if you are um, not even middle class, but you're a parent and you're trying to decide if your child is going to have a private education because that's supposed to be the better education or public education or um, you know, if or however, charter school, you're making a choice as far as where your child's going to go to school based off of you and your your child. However, let's say you're the parent that wants, okay, this is my child. I want them to have the best education. I'm going to send them to private school. So you send your child to private school, and that's taking funding away from the public school education. And so the children who don't have a choice, their parents can't make that decision. They can't afford that decision to send their child to private school. They're losing their textbooks or better teachers or having overcrowded classroom because of the decision that some people make to put their child in private school. That's not to say that anybody's like a, a black parent is wrong for for wanting their child to have a better education. But like you said, it's, it's that kind of concept of do what's best for me or do what's best for my community or how do I make sure that everybody's getting the best at both ends. It's not going to be a, a perfect picture for the home seller or the home buyer when you're talking about the black community because all because it's a broken system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's important, right? Because sometimes you, you force a household, well, you, you force parents, right, to have that kind of decision. Because I think when you say, I want to help my community, that's always admirable. But yeah. is, there is a reality where you feel like it shouldn't be that way, but you kind of have to choose because I know this will look better my community, especially like, for example, I think a good example is sports like athletics where you see the star athlete from high school. And of course, them going to historically black college, being recruited in that aspect will be helpful, but we know those historically black schools are not gonna have that same kind of attention than going to a school where they're known for their accolades. Yeah. So it's like, it's a whole process where you have to kind of, you have to really analyze like, yeah, I, I get that, but Mm-hmm. They didn't work this hard to be, you know, they want to make it to the league. That's their dream. Um, I think I think that's slowly going to change. Um, man, I should have had this. I just thought about that point, but I was going to read a research. Because I know Deion Sanders became part of historically, historically Black College, so I know him being a legend, he's going to help bring recruitment into the school that he's associated with. And I actually forgot the name of the school he's associated with, but that's actually a, a way to do it. Some of these... Mm-hmm. Athletes, they can help in that regard, right? Like, hey, let's associate ourselves with these historically black colleges because the recruits yeah. saying, "Well, that's not sexy enough for me to go there." Well, there's a legend who's part of the coaching staff. Why wouldn't you want to go there? Yeah, now you change, absolutely. change reputation. Yeah. Right, and so I think um, I like what you said at the beginning of this about like it's not, it's not our problem. To, it should not have to be on our shoulders to have to make these choices of helping our community or because it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be so much inequality however we know that we have to have always had to kind of save ourselves so to speak so that's why i kind of thought about the first question in a reverse way because i think for the people who can do that whole like if you're going to do flipping houses if you're going to do um generational wealth through real estate if you i would i would encourage them to think about like making sure that they're looking at ways into strategizing to make buying their neighborhood, buying the black neighborhoods so that um, it wouldn't be so, not to push them out, you know what I'm saying? Like not to create the, or continue the cycle of gentrification or to continue the cycle of like, um, you know, redlining. But if you're gonna do that business, then do it with a sense of 
breaking this generational curse, figuring out a way that where you can put people on so that you can be the lender. You can be the person renting out a house or selling a house. And it's not so much um, based off of what the appraiser says or what the bank says, but it's sort of like with NACA, like, I'm gonna look at your credit, but we wanna see how you manage your finances. I'm not gonna hold you to this number. I'm gonna see if you can, you know, be consistent in paying your bills on time. I'm gonna see if you can make sure that your bank account isn't negative, and that's how we're gonna approve you for a home versus um, going by the same system that has kept people from having and owning homes all this time. Right, and to piggyback off that, that helps with. There's, there's more than one ways to tackle oh, yeah. generational curses. So there's never going to be one answer. There's never one solution. That's why it, behoo- it behooves all of us to have some kind of effort because you never know what your impact could be to moving things in the right direction. Right. And that goes towards the whole buy black campaign or buy the block, right? Yep. Don't, yep. Just, don't just buy the block and resell it just for your own personal gain. I'm not knocking that because, you know, that's your efforts, yeah. but just be more mindful. If you're going to buy the block, how, how else can you help the community? Yeah, with the don't just that play the think? same game. <laughs> right. You know, don't just play the same game of Monopoly. Like, I think, um, and, and again, we can, I can't knock any, any, especially a black person, because um, American, the American dream has been, you know, shoved down our throats for so long. So I can't knock nobody from wanting to come up or set themselves. So, you know, of course we see that, but I, but there's also the idea of like, don't just get in the game and play the same game they've been playing and keep other people impoverished. The, the billion, if we have billionaires, we have people who are, you know, without a home. We have people who are without food. That should not be, they're, they're, we should not have some, somebody with so much money that and we have on the other end of the spectrum people who don't have nothing. Absolutely. And one of the ways, because right now we're, we're on this brainstorming phase, right? Because that's what we do at Generation right, Curses. Right. We, we, we break it down and we give out our dialogue to kind of inspire change and discuss what we can do. So one of the ways, right? Like, Because when I think about my hometown, Huge, right? Where it's predominantly black and it's also uh, family members of different generations. Communities like that, where I feel like everybody has a skill set, we could really operate like our own precinct if we wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like when I grew up, it wasn't it wasn't a foreign to have corner store corner stores owned by someone's uncle, someone's granddad. My great granddaddy owned a bus line I heard back in the day. So and that's the story for a lot of black households. They heard that their yeah. great grandfather or whatever they had like corner stores, they had their own this. And mm-hmm. we can still continue that because I know one thing in Huji, we have like our own land. So why not have like, okay, you know what? There's a lot of what we call country mechanics, right? So let's put money up and yep. open the shop. Yep. We ain't got to go here. We got to go out of town or out, not out of town, but out of our zip yes. code to get our car fixed. Yeah, or you know, like I was so sad, like when this pandemic hit, and um, we saw all of those like staple black restaurants closing down, and mm-hmm. I was just like, like I didn't know. Of course, I don't know their business. I don't know. I, I, I read for Mary Lou's, like it has something to do with which Mary Lou for. I know you got other listeners out of Charleston. Sorry, <laughs> but like Mary Lou's is a is a soul food restaurant in Charleston. Um, that was, I think it was like 40 years that it was running. Um, sorry, and I'm getting, it's on a, there's an article about it closing down. But I kept wondering, like, was it just the pandemic that closed this down? I know they said it about the property taxes increasing, but I'm like, we have so many black um, restaurants that are thriving right now because we can't go out to eat. What, like, we have Uber Eats and DoorDash thriving off of us because we can't go anywhere and we were all social distancing. So I'm like, you know, did it, was it just that they didn't know how to transition into like this modern way of doing things where they're delivering food now versus people coming to the building? Because I, my mind was just that this would have been, if the black restaurants that um, 
that are doing well, because Charleston is a food place, it's a tourism place, I'm sure like they could have either raised money, like you didn't even have to have a brick and mortar anymore, you know, to kind of do business because we were in a pandemic. So it just made it, it just was sad that they were closing down. It was just like, how many ideas could we have come up with if the black um, food and beverage area um, companies here would have like kind of banded together and figured out a solution so that other com- other um, restaurants weren't going out of business. Right, and and to that point, and this is me, and I don't know, of course, I don't know for sure because I would have to look at their financial statements, right? But yeah. this is where my business side comes in. So me, just as a business person, that's trying to speculate. Um, I think the pandemic was a huge deal because you'll be surprised how many of the restaurants are open for many years, but they haven't turned a profit in many years either. Yeah. So they basically have enough just to cover the overhead. So I would, my speculation would be that when a pandemic, when the pandemic happened, that income wasn't coming in, that net profit ceased. And all that inventory and a pie wasn't really built to really do the horror dashing thing. Or, right, and even if they could, it depends on the management. Like some people, they have caught up to DoorDash technology, but some haven't. Like you said, a restaurant's mm-hmm. been around for 40 years. So to have that that feeling of, well, we can DoorDash, we can do this, do that. Most of their money probably came in from the diners within the actual restaurant itself, not takeout. Right, and and that's fine. What I'm, I think my point was more of uh, the people who were surviving off and you know it didn't have to be a you stand alone you close down by yourself oh, like, kind of like that like you're seeing like a community thing where we're like banding together because it's like that kind of pivot of going back to community versus just letting this business fail this business fail you know and keeping it going and and, and that and that might be more of impossible by by the time I saw the article because you know, I, I live in North Carolina now, but by the time I saw the article, they were already announcing this closing. So who right, knows, maybe right. they were, maybe they were too, maybe it wasn't out there that they were struggling, but they want to reach out to help. Who knows yeah. the situation, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Maybe they want to go, and, that's when group ep- economics comes into play, right? Because if we exactly. have more group economics, then they probably would have fared better. But lending-wise during the pandemic, that probably was a huge nightmare and that probably was their only result that, that they felt at the time was yeah. trying to get lending and the banks was suffering right. to yeah. it. And that may have been a better option for them as well. So, I mean, you just, you never know, but I like, I like what you were saying about, like you were talking about with Hugie and um, pretty much being able to be your own precinct. Like that's a lot of places. Um, if, if we did group economics. Right, like we, who needs farmers market with all this land in Huji <laughs> and other places? You know, like we can have. They, I mean, you have people that I go don't to know. Now. I love my farmers market, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> I'm not knocking farmers market. You can still go to farmers market. Actually, I'm just saying you can have your own community farmers market too. You but know, yeah. you know someone that grow their own okras and collard greens. You got someone like that. All right, I, so. and it's, I know a lot of people and I've even been trying to get into the, like growing my own um, vegetables and stuff I, I don't got the patience but like you said it's a lot of people and, and honestly like I think it was in 1910 Showtime put out a, a show about um, the agriculture in South Carolina and how um, black or African Americans owned like I think it was like 60 like 16 million acres of land for agriculture so, um, but it was a, one of those things that was aggressively and violently um, see the land was aggressively and violently seized um, and just kind of destroyed most of the um, agriculture business in the African American community. Absolutely. So this is us brainstorming and to kind of recap on points, of course, representation matters as well. Um, we also have to do educating, educating voting, make, make sure our representatives are aware and let them know that we're serious about protecting these zip codes and making sure they're not inconvenient so that Generation Curse can die. Um, buy, buy in the block. If you are someone that's into flipping real estate, um, it's possible to kind of get in, be more mindful and not repeat. And basically, don't, don't, be, don't be your own worst enemy because you're hurting your own community and your own future legacy. 
if you're treating your own community as an easy flip, but you're actually selling it to someone that's going to flip it better than you who had experience anyway, and then you slowly push them out. Um, but for the ones who do have the power, so I don't, I don't know if this was brought back up again, but since we last spoke, of course, we were, you know, in the heels of the election at that point. Since that time, a lot of things have happened, of course. The whole Senate is blue. Um, and we have a new president-elect. And, you know, us actually become a receipt. So this is what the now president-elect said back in the middle of 2020. So Joe Biden's campaign said that he would establish a national standard for housing appraisals to ensure that appraisers are adequately trained understand the neighborhoods in which they work and do not hold implicit biases that influence their work. Also, they say an objective national standard for appraisals will also make it harder for financial institutions to put pressure on appraisers to their benefit. That last sentence was strong to me because it's almost as if that campaign did their own research and they noticed that financial institutions in the way and I don't know about appraisal processes as well as strongly but there there does appear to be some kind of fine, like pressure for financial institutions or how they want these places appraised in some instances right. um, when we think about is, go ahead I was going to say that, that's great I love when um, any type of policy is like directly um, stating what they're going to do um, I think another just I would just add that to like who's going to keep them accountable like how do you for me I always need to see like how do you measure to make sure that um, these agencies are not using implicit bias like even in jobs they we have diversity and inclusion is like in all over you know is that um, catchphrase now and it's just like okay well who's holding people accountable what's the repercussions of it um, but I love that you know this is what he said in 2020 and that it is a, a direct approach Absolutely. And what I was going to mention was, and kind of to tie in what you just responded to, in terms of accountability, who's going to hold them accountable? You know what can hold them accountable in the business aspect? Competition. This is a perfect example because if you, like the whole bank with Killer Mike and I've got the two other gentlemen um, at the time, it's lost, but the Greenwood Bank that they're going to launch, which is the a black owned bank and of course they have um, they're catering to minorities that's going to be huge because when we think about Wells Fargo right and their scandal that they had where they were opening accounts <laughs> basically without consent to raise their numbers and it was mostly affecting minorities and then you saw the CEO early this year in a Zoom call when they asked why isn't more representation in the executive board they're saying it's hard to find talented black talent in the, in the recruiting pool. Nice. So, yeah, so news like that, it's easy to hold them accountable because someone else can be like, you know what? <laughs> if that's going to be a backlash, that's what we can do where it still benefits us, but we can be competitive. If Wells Fargo is going to treat their black customers like that, then one way that we can give back is not only by banking options, but by making sure our appraisers know, hey, this is how we can attack that situation. We can be competitive and we can still benefit because one of the worst things you can do is to build generational wealth. And when you're trying to utilize that wealth or liquidate those assets is to be undervalued. And you're undervalued because a system is letting you know that if it's predominantly black owned, or black resided is a poor value. But that just a little tidbit right there. So I think competition can help with accountability too. Because once they see the competition saying the right, I know it's all political sometimes, but sometimes political can be to our benefit too. You say the wrong things, you take the backlash, someone else steps up and here comes from, here's what comes from it. Here's the gold in that minefield. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that um, with competition and accountability. I, I do think, again, I still struggle with the I like you were saying about uh, we having to save us because this is like to me, this is a form of, of um, 
reparations or remedies. This is a government, a federal and state government issue that has cursed the black community and they, I put the ownership on them. So I completely, I, I'm with you about nobody's coming to save us and sometimes we have to save ourselves and so I'm all with Killer Mike and those other two gentlemen doing the thing. As well as other um, black owned, I think it's like One United Bank was one of the first things he used, Killer Mike used to say, um, that was pretty much a proven, um, they had a, they were aggressively approving um, black people for homes. Um, but again, it, it should come from the federal government. And I think like there should be certain standards specifically to the black community where we're not having to, because of this issue of us always having to be pushed out um, in this long historical systematic um, injustices of not being able to own homes or not being able to live in our neighborhoods. I think that they should um, remedy that financially with with um, home approvals and not based off of the same standards that everybody else is still based off of. I know in the um, Color of Law book, one of the remedies that he said was that um, in New York, I think I forget what town he said, but it was a town that was 15% black. He was pretty much saying that any house for sale that's marketed at 350000 the federal government should purchase 15% of those homes and then resell it specifically to black people for 75000 which is the value that it would have been had their great, um, it's today's values of what their grandparents would have bought for a home back when um, redlining started or whenever whenever segregation was happening. Um, but pretty much taking the ownership on them, like you purchase these homes and then you resell it to black people at a lower cost. Um, and of course he positioned it that it is a very radicalized idea, but that's, I'm thinking on terms of that, like this is an issue that you created that still haunts us, that still keeps us from being, having wealth at all, from still, that keeps us, um, that's inequitable and so we should push our representatives we should they should create policy that does something to along those lines as well absolutely so let's hope that what biden's campaign put out there in 2020 that i read earlier let, let's hope that's that's taken to a a higher level and approved in some way shape or form because that's huge yeah. if they can create a national standard and that's another way of to your point holding them accountable by policy, right? That's directly on them accountable. I will say one thing I do love about um, this new campaign is he is um, appointing a lot of social workers and social, you know, I'm a social worker, so that is awesome. <laughs> well, actually, I'll go ahead and be part of the cabinet. I'm trying to get you in there. I know, right? I'm like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you get appointed? Let me put my name on some ballot somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm I'm just glad. I hope that they're they're versed in um because even so short, I criticize my own field, um, has a rooted history of racism and inequity. So I hope that they are policymakers that's gonna consider equitable practices and help to write, you know, good policies. That sounds like a future episode, huh? Social working. Yes, I love I listen, I can talk about any aspect of social work. I love it. All right, well, that's going to be coming up soon, then. That's why Ashley keeps coming back, because she just she doesn't have all these different topics she's passionate about, so she's going to always come back. She play, she playing the game right. Wow. She's okay. playing the game I, right. Y'all let me know if y'all get sick of me, but I don't care. <laughs> I care. So, in closing, uh, a generational curse of redlining, I want you to, once again, put out the title of the book that you're referring to so that our listeners can go to Amazon and Barnes Noble or whatever is available. I think it's mostly available on Amazon. I don't think I've seen the Barnes yeah. Noble yet, but can you give that title out again? Yeah, it's called The The Color of Law and it's by Richard Rothstein. Um, and it's the um, cover page has, or the cover has a like a map, like the color codes that you were talking about. Um, and it's, I got it for seventeen ninety five. All right, Ashley gave her price. Ashley is on point tonight. <laughs> Ashley is on point black tonight. people care about their prices. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I don't so, know if Kindle got it cheaper, but yeah. Got it. Ashley, I think Kindle is free. If if you get it on Kindle, is if you're into reading oh. on tablets, I'm I'm still kind of old school. I like hardcover books. Me too. But Me too. 
on Kindle is free. Just to let y'all know, I did check it out earlier. It's, it is it's free on Kindle if you're into that you reading on tablets. <laughs> so, so Ashley, I want to thank you again for coming on to another strong episode on the messages moving. We're definitely going to link up again on future episodes. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. And for my listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. We will be back soon because I'm recording like three episodes this week. I'm gone for a couple wow. of weeks, but I'm coming back strong. And that next one's going to be crazy. Like this one was monumental. Until next time, y'all take care. It's beat.